From Bowling Green State University and the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society, this is BG Ideas. I'm going to show you this with a wonderful experiment. Hello, and welcome back to the Big Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society and the School of Media and Communication at Bowling Green State University. I'm Stevie Sherrick, a PhD student in BGSU's American Culture Studies program and a graduate teaching associate in BGSU's Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies program. I'll be guest hosting this episode, which is part of a mini-series focusing on the National Endowment for the Humanities-sponsored project toward a pedagogy from crisis, adaptive teaching and learning at Bowling Green State University during COVID-19. Due to the ongoing pandemic, we are not recording in the studio, but from home, via phone, and computer. As always, the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of BGSU or its employees. Bowling Green State University is located in the Great Black Swamp, long a meeting place of the Wyandotte, Shawnee, Lenape, Ottawa, Kickapoo, Fox, Potawatomi, Erie, Miami, Peoria, Chippewa, and Seneca Indian tribes. We honor the rich history of this land and its indigenous inhabitants past and present. For today's episode, we will be doing things a little bit differently. Building on our previous episode, featuring members of the grant team working on Torta Pedagogy from Crisis, today I will be talking to the non-tenure track faculty members who participated in the summer camp devoted to reflexive teaching and learning. Campers were comprised of graduate teaching associates and contingent faculty who experienced differing levels of precarity due to their positioning within academia. Since we here at Big Ideas are big believers in the transformative power of storytelling, This episode will feature members of the Summer Institute sharing their personal experiences of precarity and uncertainty caused by COVID-19 pandemic. I began by asking everyone about how the pandemic has brought to light pre-existing crises and precarity within academia. These crises are disproportionately experienced by people who are Black, Indigenous, people of color, disabled, queer, and working class folks at all levels of academia. I asked everyone how they saw these inequalities affecting their students and themselves as non-tenure track faculty. Everyone immediately began by reflecting on how their students were being affected. Megan Rancier, an associate teaching professor of ethnomusicology, was concerned by major gaps in access to internet and technology. I think I've definitely noticed those inequalities kind of more outside the university than than within it. But I think you're absolutely right that once we kind of all went into crisis mode, um, all of these obstacles, all of these inequalities suddenly became much more obvious to people who previously probably were oblivious to them like me. So for example, I'll I'll talk about one thing with faculty and one thing with students. And I'll start with the students because, you know, obviously when we shifted everything online, there was this massive assumption that the internet would just solve everything, you know, that like, oh, it'll, it won't be any problem. Um, students are using internet all the time. They're good at it. They know how to use all of these different things. And of course they'll have access because why wouldn't they? And then come to find out, oh, everybody was using the university wireless. Everybody was, well, not everybody, but a lot of people were using university devices, people living in urban spaces, rural spaces, you know, it didn't matter where they were. If they were not on campus, there was no guarantee that they were going to have access to a device or access to a reliable internet, and in some cases, internet at all. So um, (laughs) in retrospect, it seems completely 
bizarre that we would have just made that assumption that everybody would be fine. Within a few days, it became obvious that everything was not fine. And students started to fall through the cracks. So that was a huge challenge for everybody. And then you start looking around and realizing um, how many other challenges students are dealing with. You know, if you're in an apartment with eight other family members and they're all sharing the same device, or, you know, maybe you live in a, a situation that is not healthy or safe, you have that added challenge. And so like all of a sudden the focus totally shifts from, um, okay, we need to make sure the students are doing what they're supposed to be doing, completing their assignments, um, doing what they doing what we ask them to do in our course syllabi, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden we faculty are more placed in a situation where we're like, hey, are you okay? Like, what do you need? Um, talk to me. Like, are you there? I'm worried about you. I mean, suddenly it became a lot more human than I think a lot of faculty are used to being with their students. And that is very challenging, I think, for a lot of faculty, because I think sometimes we go into this sort of default mode of um, almost a little bit of a um, oppositional relationship with students, like they, <laughs> as if they're always trying to outsmart us and we're always trying to like anticipate what they're going to try to do to get out of what we're assigning them, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so there's this kind of like Tom and Jerry dynamic uh, a little bit. But um, when we get into that mindset, we forget about each other's um, mutual humanity, you know, and I think that the, the COVID crisis and shifting everything to online and realizing that the real problems that our students were dealing with outside of coursework um, was a real wake up call for faculty that I think we needed. Christopher Wotulski is an assistant teaching professor in the College of Musical Arts who teaches ethnomusicology and world music. He's noticed that both the pandemic and the summer's protests for racial justice have prompted a broader discussion about how curriculum design can be used to either promote or push back against colonial and white supremacist structures. Well, and, and maybe that's telling that it's not very often that I sit back and think, what would the dream structure be for a system that is more equitable, uh, you know, for everybody involved. The fact that that's not a conversation that we have uh, is, is telling in its own right, and perhaps that's part of the conversation itself. But um, no, in, in my department, we're actually trying to make some changes. I think there are a lot of things that we've noticed related to the COVID crisis in the spring, the shifty online learning to, and then also, you know, um, the issues, the, the obvious foregrounding of racial disparities and inequities that happened over the summer. Um, obviously that extended far past that, but that became really clear and really focused in like the national consciousness over the summer. Um, that's turned into, I don't know about other fields, but within across music studies, that's been something that's, that's uh, that every, every part of musical studies has been grappling with this, you know, history of white supremacy, why we value what we value, what we teach, why we teach what we teach, how we do it. Um, because at the end of the day, it's all choices that we're making, right? We're, we're like valuing, valuing certain ideas and valuing certain content. Um, I personally don't care if you know, you know, Mozart's birthday. Um, but this is a conversation I've been having with my students for a different class. Like, 
how can you take these ideas about history and thread them into something that's relevant and compelling and helps us to understand the experiences that we are having, you know, here and now. Um, how do we understand, how do we look to, you know, when I teach world music, how do we look to other people around the world and see how they're interacting with music and each other um, and use that to understand ourselves, right? Maybe that's a little selfish, but like, how do you, you know, what, how can we look at something that feels different? Because that's what a lot of teaching is. You're introducing new ideas and then use that to like better reimagine ourselves. Some of the people I talked to focused on how the pandemic's highlighting of existing inequalities has given us an unprecedented opportunity for improvement. Tiffany Scarola, an assistant teaching professor in the English department, sees the pandemic and the major shifts in educational approaches it requires as an opportunity for expanding and accelerating the work that has already been done to build just and equitable classrooms. I feel like for both me and my students, it's been equally set, but I mean, there's always gonna be issues in any form of education, whether it be higher education or K through 12 learning, because people are becoming more comfortable with embracing their identities, which they should, you know, like we have accessibility now, as opposed to it being disability previously, you know, and we have LGBTQI community, you know, especially BG, it being a safe zone, safe campus, um, things like that. So, I mean, it's just the fact that it's, people are becoming more comfortable, but it's still this slow moving arc, right? Because we just don't know what people are going to become comfortable with once they kind of like define their identity. Um, but before, I definitely feel like a lot of those particular issues that students struggle with, especially with regards to identity, not just so much as in like gender or binary identity, but in terms of having disability requirements, you know, and stuff like that, students with dyslexia, or I have a student who requires to be able to actually like see my mouth physically to be able to, you know, listen to lecture because I forget what it is that causes that, but that kind of needs something that I never would have thought of, right? Especially now with having to wear my face partially covered when I do a physical lecture. Um, but I definitely think, I think some good has actually come out of the pandemic because now we're kind of, and I don't want to use the word forced, but it seems like the only term I can kind of use, you know, we have to confront it and we have to realize it in a real way and in an immediate way. And some of the stuff that we've had to do to accommodate just kind of the general student population has very much had a positive effect. While everyone was mostly focused on how the crisis was affecting their students, with a little encouragement, I was able to get them to share how the crisis was affecting them as non-tenure track faculty members. And of course, faculty were going through their own challenges. So, you know, shifting from the students to the faculty themselves, um, I think most of us are in the privileged position of not having to worry about um, equipment and reliable internet as much, although that is still a challenge for a number of faculty, especially um, part-time faculty um, who don't enjoy a full-time salary, let's face it. Um, and they also have job precarity to, as you mentioned, um, to worry about. Um, <laughs> I, I saw numerous examples of people trying to teach from home, but they had their kids there, you know, their kids were home from school and they're trying to juggle 50 different things. I mean, I realized how incredibly lucky I am to have what I have you know, just a quiet space. I don't have children. So like, I didn't have to worry about that. 
Um, and I completely sympathize with people who do because that just seems like such an impossible task. But um, yeah, a lot of pressure placed on faculty to suddenly come up with this completely new way of teaching that a lot of faculty just really were not um, prepared for. And it makes sense. I mean, so many things you take for granted. Just sitting in a room and talking to another person, you don't realize how easy it is until you're trying to replicate that experience through a screen with buttons and apps. And all of a sudden you realize, oh my gosh, I took this simple thing so much for granted where I could say something and look at the other person to see if they understand. And now I can't even do that. That's such a simple thing, such a human thing that technology really cannot fully replicate. And the pedagogical experience, like pedagogy itself is so dependent on that basic human interaction that I think a lot of us are still kind of struggling to figure out how to replicate that. All of the campers I spoke with noted that the COVID crisis and the summer camp have encouraged them to bring a vulnerability and approachability to this help them build stronger community in both their virtual and face-to-face classes. Here's Elena Aponte, adjunct instructor of women's studies and academic writing. I think um, struggling with community was kind of an issue beforehand. It still is now, but I think um, post-pandemic, we're a little more in this together. Um, and I think difficult in terms of personal issues, you know, my teaching persona and being a teacher has incredibly changed since the pandemic. Um, and that's one of the things that the summer camp really helped with too, is just allowing us to be more vulnerable um, and allowing us to really engage more as a community with students, um, whether that's making sure to let them know that this is a safe classroom or, you know, just simply reaching them on a more personal level with, with the different things you can do as a teacher. And here's Chris Watulski. Yeah, I think I have, but I'm not sure if it's a change from the student side or if it's a change that results out of my own thinking as it shifted during the camp. Um, there were a couple elements of the camp that I really appreciated, especially starting, like the idea of creating a space for learning is not a super novel idea for online teaching. But for instance, I remember there's a there's a moment in, there was a moment in the camp where some of the like assigned listening was about vulnerability and uh, humanization and sort of you know humanizing yourself and trying to like allow the students to be human as well. And that goes beyond the basic here are a handful of strategies for icebreakers and building communities. It, it gets beyond that in a way. And for many students, maybe it doesn't. Right? Maybe it doesn't matter. But. Um, I feel like I hope it does, right? Sort of being more human, being a real person, um, being vulnerable, being comfortable with that, um, sort of sitting within that and existing there. Um, so yeah, in that sense, I do feel like there has been a change. I hope it's something that's reflected in the way the students are perceiving things. Some campers have also noted that as much as technology can be a barrier, it can also help build a relaxed and supportive learning environment. Here's Lena Aponte again. I think allowing them, like, talking via chat is often really fun, too. Because um, it's like being, if, if you spend a lot of time online or interacting with, with um, each other like that, it is really fun. So it's been fun to teach that way, too. Um, and they are, they are kind of way more supportive. Um, I know, like, in my office, 
we have the motion sensor lights. And sometimes if I'm lecturing, they'll just, my lights will just turn off. So <laughs> they're used to me like waving my hands at some point during the lecture to turn the lights back on. And they're really supportive about that. <laughs> so speaking of technology, making and breaking barriers, Tiffany Scarola shared with me how she used Snapchat to help reach students who only have access to classes through their phones. In the spring when we were first to go all remote, I had one of those students who was using his phone a lot for schoolwork. And um, I decided to use Snapchat as a mode of communication with my students. And I kind of said it as like a joke, you know, like, oh yeah, you guys can like hit me up on Snapchat, right? And a bunch of them were like, no, I really need it because I have terrible internet or I have unreliable internet, but my phone data works so much better. And at the end of the semester, uh, several of them remarked to me, you know, if you hadn't used Snapchat to send out messages about class, I never would have known when some stuff was due, or I never would have known class announcements, or I never would have known in these updates. I concluded all of my interviews by asking the campers to share with me their wildest dreams about how this crisis could serve to restructure academia into a more just and equitable environment for both instructors and students. Answers ranged from changes in individual teaching practices to broad changes at every level of education in the United States. Tiffany Scarola emphasized the radical importance of bringing transparency to academia. This is something that I truly do value, what pandemic or no, but definitely the pandemic I think would provide us the opportunity to embrace this, is transparency for real. And not, not the manifestation, the falsity of it, you know, I mean, because transparency is a real thing and people say the word, but they don't live the word when they're, you know, sometimes with certain things. And it, I just feel like if not now, when are you going to do it? You know, cause that's how we break the barriers and realize that all those members of those underrepresented groups, you know, can participate. If we are truly embracing transparency, then, then those groups will feel included. You know, it's, it's not just a matter. It's, I mean, of course, people identifying by their proper pronoun all those things are are so acceptable and great and I love that and let's keep doing that but that's not all we need to do to create a completely equitable society either in academia or outside of academia you know I mean I just I hear I hear the word transparency used in meetings and professional and it's just like but you guys don't fully embrace it and that's part of why there's still a disconnect and why your students aren't getting the material is because you aren't fully being transparent. And I, for as long as I've been teaching, I think I've been teaching now at this level since, I wanna say like 2013 was my first year teaching academically, like at college level. And I have always tried to embrace the idea of transparency before it was a thing. You know, letting my students know about the things that I struggled with in school and the things that I struggle with as an instructor, like letting them know, okay, guys, like I really messed up this one lecture thing from the other day. So forgive me, let me backtrack on this, you know, and stuff like that. And just being actually open with them, you know, even down to how I design my canvas shells. And, you know, I don't, when I do it, I put everything out there for them all at once. And I tell them, yeah, it's going to be scary and intimidating, but at least you know everything that you're getting into. And I try to make it so everything is just in the modules and they can just go on down the line and there's no, here's your to-do list for the week. Here's this separate window where you can get all these readings from. It's like, here's all the readings and they're listed in the schedule in this order. So literally all you have to do is go down the line. Here's the assignment for this week and just go on down the line as opposed to making them dig for the content. 
there's a time and a place where they should be doing that, you know, for like source acquisition and stuff like that. But a truly transparent classroom means that we recognize all of those things, you know, and we allow our students to see that we are not infallible, because that's a big part of the problem with not just the underrepresented groups, but with the groups that are widely represented. They still feel that there's this really big distinction between the fact that we're in front of the room and they're on that side of the room. At one point, we were all on that side of the room. And we need to recognize the real struggles of what happens on that side of the room, regardless of race, gender, identity, any of those things. And it starts with us acknowledging the things that we have struggled with ourselves, you know, and right now people are more willing than ever to talk about the things that they're struggling with, you know, but it's, there's still, we still could do more. So that's the, if, in an ideal utopian society, yeah, it would be to actually to not just say that I believe in transparency and to say that I create a safe space to actually, you know, live up to saying the words. There's a big difference between saying that you embrace it and actually demonstrating it to your students. That's how you get through to them. And that's how you overcome, you know, crisis, whether it be in your education or in the real world. It's all the same. Chris Witulski focused on the need for universities to build flexibility into their structures to encourage experimentation and to make systemic change easier. This is something that I wish we were better at, but there are a lot of structural, really firm, multi-leveled structural uh, boundaries to being able to make the kinds of changes that I think would be really helpful. Um, whether it's in the area, in the department, in the field of study, in the classroom, at the university, you know. I think the hardest part, see, I don't even have like an answer to what I would imagine the best, what I imagine like a dream situation to be because I'm having a hard time imagining beyond the boundaries that exist, you know. Um, but I feel like oftentimes there are solutions that seem really clear and really straightforward, but then there are boundaries to implementing those that are frustrating, you know? And I think the, the, the sheer degree of frustration that exists uh, keeps, keeps those boundaries in place, right? Those things um, prevent people from being able to carry out the kinds of changes that would, that would, that would make a difference. Um, in terms of a structure, I would love to see a more flexible university. I would love to see a more flexible system. Uh, we're trying to do that a little bit in our area. I would love to see systems that are, I would love to see stronger online systems. I would love it when like, whenever I take an online class, the online, like I learned a lot because there were good things that I wanted to use instead of like, oh, I took this online class and I learned a lot because being a student in it was really awful for some reason, you know? <laughs> um, that's not, the camp was actually was an excellent example of something that gave a lot of models of how you can do this better. Um, but a lot of times when I've taken online classes, they've been really painful. Um, yeah, I would love to see more flexibility for instructors, for the university, for structures, for students, more options, more ways to engage things, more ways to understand the ideas that we're trying to get across, more, um, more opportunity for you know choosing your own adventure, but not in a way that just sort of fits you within a different administrative structure instead, which is what it often turns into. You know what I mean? Um, so a way to do that in like a, a real 
powerful way at the core of imagining what the school is. What that looks like, I don't know, I'd have to sit down for a little while and, and jot some notes down. So. <laughs> Elena Aponte emphasized how hiring more Black, Indigenous, and POC instructors will positively impact Black, Indigenous, and POC students. I think the sense of humanity is really important. And if I was going to look to the future, I would definitely hope that that, that sense of humanity is put to the forefront too. Um, and again, going back to my personal things in terms of justice and equity, um, making sure not to teach students a history of anything that's whitewashed, right? Making sure that, that students, because um, in the Pathways program, I do have a, quite a bit of students who are students of color or first time, first generation students. So, and, and they're not, they may not be expecting their professors to even acknowledge that or understand that. And so I want to be able that I can. Mm -hmm. um, and it does frustrate me that I am, um, even though I'm, I'm half Puerto Rican, I'm still white, like <laughs> I'm also half white. <laughs> so it's frustrating that um, I may have to, like I do have to teach students of color their history in some way. That is frustrating. So my, my hope for the future would be that there's more opportunities for professors of color to teach, you know, everything they want to teach, but also to teach students a history from their own perspective too. Um, and I know we're seeing stuff with like the University of Chicago is offering, um, I'd have, it's been a while since I've read the article, but um, they're offering this program specifically for black scholars and they're getting a lot of pushback for it um, because they're saying, you know, like, well, you're, you're shutting out a huge demographic of students, et cetera, et cetera. But if we're looking at the world around us, it makes sense for them to want more black scholarship, right? Especially if we need to understand these issues as for those of us who can't, right? Or didn't before. So that's also something I'd like to see moving forward in terms of, of justice and equity, um, recognizing uh, the black indigenous people of color and that community and making more opportunities for them without making them feel guilty either. Elena also pointed out the importance of equitable pay for non-tenure track faculty. From a completely personal standpoint, um, more opportunities for adjunct professors as well. Um, better pay, access to healthcare, um, I think adjunct professors do a lot of the majority of, of teaching core classes for universities. Same thing with graduate students. Graduate students teach a lot of core classes as well. Um, they just need to be more publicly recognized for the work that they do. They're well-educated individuals. Um, you know, a lot of us have master's degrees as well. Um, and we're doing this because we love to teach or we love the, um, the discipline that we've learned in. So it's only fair that we should be get a little more recognition for what we do at the university, which I think will happen in time, for sure. And finally, Megan Rincier pointed out the importance of equitably funding education at all levels. Now, if we're talking about my wildest dream, um, I would want to make university education free. I would want it to be accessible to everybody. Um, and that would also require for that would also require all K through 12 schools to be adequately resourced and equitably resourced so that students come in with the same levels of preparation, which if you teach in any university, you realize that they are not. Um, 
So that would be my wildest dream. Equal resource allocation to all K through 12 schools, free college for everybody. Um, yeah, adequate funding, my God. Like if you look at the decline in the state share of instruction to public universities, okay? the institutions that the state is supposed to be supporting so that it has an educated workforce that can then go into good jobs so that they can then pay their taxes and fund everything that we need in the state. Um, it's shocking how that funding has declined um, over the past few decades. So I would love for this crisis to be a wake-up call to um, you know state legislators and even federal legislators to reinvest in public education because we need it and we've seen how this how the pandemic has highlighted all of these inequities but what my fear is is that it might do completely the opposite because we've had this economic downturn as a result of the pandemic and the knee-jerk reaction seems to be, oh, well, we've got to cut this, we've got to cut that. All of a sudden we're in austerity mode when that is very short-term thinking. If we're thinking in the long-term, we need to be investing in education even more. Um, you know, not to get on a soapbox or anything, but like because of what I saw with um, unequal in, in access to technology and resources um, during the shift in spring 2020, I would just like for that not to be an issue. Um, those just simple barriers to an education. Um, and again, it's true at the K through 12 level as well. Um, every child, every student should have equal access and equal opportunity to the tools and resources that they need um, in order to have and um, have a shot at being successful um, because otherwise the inequalities will simply compound on each other and the the gaps will become wider um, we need to change the direction of of the funding situation in education so i don't know if that was a dream or a dystopia that i just painted for you and with that, I'll leave you all to mull over your own dreams and ideas about what can be done to build a more just and equitable academia and educational environment for all. I want to thank everyone who spoke with me for this episode. Listeners can keep up with the Tour de Pedagogy from Crisis Project and other ICS happenings by following us on Twitter at ICSBGSU and on our Facebook page. You can listen to Big Ideas wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. Our producers are Chris Cavera and Marco Mendoza with sound editing by Marco Mendoza. Support for this episode was provided by the National Endowment for the Humanities, which funded the grant project toward a pedagogy from crisis, adaptive teaching and learning at Bowling Green State University during COVID-19.